Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L O U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm D. Chupar. Hey there, folks, this is Don Flynn of the American Songster slapping the dap with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. Henry Thomas's body of music connects the roots of black music in Africa to the 19th and 20th century African-American folk song to the essence of the blues, as well as everything in between and thereafter. We've covered much of his discography and the history connected to the music and the travel of the blues people. Please enjoy our last installment of the Jack Dapper Blues podcast series in association with Lone Star Blues and Heritage Festival on Henry Thomas, a Texas blues legend, which features my recurring guest, the American songster, Dom Flemons. The audience had no choice. They were just watching a play or a musical or a character or a lot of these early uh, vaudeville performers were like, you know, Burt Williams. When you see him outside of his character, he's like suave, dapper, you know? Right, right. When he's in his stage gear, he is in blackface he has a top hat he's almost a charlie chaplin-esque hobo who's shuffling along like a lumbering buffoon but you see this is a this is what these guys thrived on for their their type of entertainment but now the blues comes in and it is a direct reflection the 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 performer is the character that they are they are not a secondary character right it's not caricature and and again and and if you think of the the whole history of things like minstrelsy and as it builds up you can understand why it would fall apart once a type of music like the blues becomes popular because jazz is built on the same idea but instrumentally right you're you're not doing the composition straight. You're doing the composition with a little extra. So and then here comes this this guy or this gal who is just at the bar with you having a conversation, then walks up on stage and pretty much presents a song based on what you guys are just talking about. But but she's she's presenting it or he's presenting it to the audience as if it's just you and him still sitting here at the bar with a couple of drinks talking about what just happened. Exactly. And and remember that socially, this was like the worst place to be in, in one regard, because people, uh, they didn't want to be associated with the bar rooms. Because, again, you have a generation that's coming out of slavery and you have a generation that's been that's been freed from slavery already. So now you're having two different ideologies that are going out in terms of what people think is socially acceptable. You have right. Folks that are going into the wide open areas, but you also have people going into the very conservative areas. So just to and then also just to mention like spiritual music and then gospel music getting big in the 1930s. This is also kind of in the backdrop of of all of this music that we're talking about. So this is this is sort of like a constant uh, uh, push and pull between these two different factions. And so right. that's as well as the HBCUs mm-hmm. taking huge popularity, um, um, cranking out new um, congressmen and writers and things of this nature. That's right. Because even a guy like <clears throat> Irving Jones or a guy like um, another contemporary of theirs was a guy named Ernest Hogan. And one of the things that I read that Ernest Hogan did was that he had a band that would stand up and sing with him on the chorus. And to me, when I heard that, it reminded me of Cab Calloway.
whoa, there's a predecessor to Cab Calloway. It's not coming from nowhere, but Cab Calloway refined something that people were starting to experiment with. Because, again, thinking in a pseudo-classical setting, you know, these guys are trying to figure out different ways to blow people's minds, whether it's with African-American vocal styles, instrumental uh, skills, and also compositional skills. And, again, you see this in jazz. Like, by the time bebop comes along, it's a lot of the same type of ideology. They're trying to figure out, okay, what's something that we can do that's going to be innovative and it's not going to be anything anybody can replicate except us. So you find that there's an earlier version of that type of ideology. And so with uh, Henry Thomas, he has several songs that when you listen to him, you start thinking like, wow, these are really interesting narratives. Like there's one song that he does, the Woodhouse Blues.
is the one song he does that's from a woman's perspective, even though he's a man singing it. Again, in the early recorded era, people weren't really as strict about that. They they wanted to sing the actual composition and they didn't bother trying to change genders when they okay. sang. Also, Henry Thomas is interesting in a way that uh, going back to the song Arkansas, where it has three different pop tunes in the guise of this cowboy song, he's also singing four different parts in the course of singing these four numbers. And the narrative is transient in of itself as he's singing the song. And so he understands how to string a story together with four songs instead of him only doing one song at a time. Which, <laughs> which is not an easy thing to do. Exactly. And then also this this gives you a whole different layer to think about when you say they're doing a square dance for 20 minutes. If they have a certain rhythm or a certain melody that folks are doing, and then they want to switch the melody, they can just switch it up freely and pay, play for 20 minutes. Because it's an open-tuned guitar, so you just bar that one chord in, and then you're, you've created a whole different feel for your, your dance, you know? That is true. Kind of, kind of like how hip-hop will just... Hip-hop will do, like, one chord change a lot of times, you know, though? It'll, like, you'll have the first half of the record's going to be right, and A, and then it's, like, rap, 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 and A, and then it's, like, halfway through, they'll go up to D and be, like, da, 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 and then it changes the whole feel of the entire song. Yes, and, um, that is true. And and so you find Henry Thomas will do things like that within his recorded repertoire as well. So it's, again, it's... um. As I've gone along, I found it's it's been uh, much more. It, it's got it gets so much deeper with with Henry Thomas. Again, he's like a Rosetta Stone because if you the more you record, right. it, it comes back and it'll give you so much more to think about. But the next section I have are the country blues numbers. So this is more okay. blues as we think about it, you know. And um, the first one is Red River Blues, which is one of the most well known. Kind of, it's sort of a proto blues because it's kind of like three A's and one B, which is what W.C. Handy describes the blues as. Okay. And so um, he's playing quills on it. It's also a well-known Carolina Piedmont number, the Red River Blues, the Blood Red River and all that. And it also can, it also shares a lot of similarities to see that my grave is kept clean by blind lemon Jefferson. Who's again, another Texas songster that um, that's a part of um, Henry Thomas.
another song is the Shanty Blues, which is the one song he does with slide guitar. And it sounds like he's playing it over his lap, Hawaiian style. Also similar to how W.C. Handy describes the first type of blues that he heard. He heard a fellow who was out on a train uh, depot, a bench. And the guy was playing the strangest music he'd ever heard. But when reading the handy book, he mentions the strangest music he's ever heard. And this fellow's playing in a style popularized by Hawaiian musicians. So he he's playing over his lap. And to me, it sounds like Henry Thomas is playing over his lap. Um, Which is another uh, uh, reflect, reflection of Charlie Patton. Exactly. And and that's something that, you know, the, the whole theory of how they decided to start playing like that, that's something that's still kind of wide open in terms terms of the scholarship, even though there's a lot of information that's circumstantial, you just have to imagine that folks have the guitar, they figure it out. And then, you know, if, if there's a traveling Hawaiian group that comes through, I mean, why not, why not adapt that? That's a, <laughs> what a sound, you know, can you imagine? Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's Again, this is one where Henry Thomas seems like he's he kind of gets a house. He's kind of gets the slide style, but you can tell this is not his forte because it's it's kind of his it's his one number that you can see that the style might be somewhat awkward for him. Mm. But it's interesting to know that he's doing it because again, comparing it to someone like Charlie Patton, you can kind of hear like, oh, this is where he's going with it. Of course, the song form is the. Um, the popular "Keep My Skillet Good and Greasy" uh, uh, song style that's that's connected to um, the Bootleggers Blues by um, <coughs> the Mississippi Sheiks and also um, 
uh, Blues Jump the Rabbit, which is a uh, one you find a lot with the, a lot of the Mississippi blues, and then also um, Mississippi John Hurt did the song Payday, and so it's the same. It's the same song form as uh, as all those. So Shanty Blues has that style. Hey, I'm sorry. There was something I wanted to ask you when we were talking about quills, but as per usual, you and I could just go way deep. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did jug bands and the jug instrument somewhat replace quills the way the harmonica replaced the fiddle in blues? I think in some ways, yes. Uh, the quills are more directly connected to the harmonica specifically. Like, um, there's um, a great biography of D. Ford Bailey, the famous uh, country music harmonica player from the Grand Ole Opry, and he mentions that there were quills within his family unit in the outer the outer rural regions of Nashville when he was growing up. And so I just assumed that the quills were a part of an earlier tradition, but then once you had the harmonica, it's so much more durable. I mean, even for me traveling with quills, you know, you have to be very selective with the quills. You can't put them in a place that's too tight or it gets smashed. You can't put them in a place that's too loose or it gets smashed. And and again, they're bamboo canes. So if they get smashed, it's, you, you know, you kind of just have to throw them away uh, just because you can't really replace them. Right and 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 get the same effect, um, but jug band music uh, is is part of this. It's a it's it's part of a again a, a much bigger folk music tradition that's sort of um, uh, evolving and is like ebbing and flowing and breathing within the whole spectrum of especially the early 1920s. So it's like the the recording era almost inherited like 150 years of music and the evolution of that music right when they start saying hey do you know some old songs come on in and record so it was it kind of opened the floodgate mm, mm. and okay and, and so the the one 12 bar blues that henry thomas does is texas worry blues which is a great number also that's something about henry thomas too is his verses are very mindful and that's something that's not always um, apparent with all of the early songsters many of them just improvise the verses and you'll find like 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 a guy like Peg Leg Hal, for example, all of his blues, a lot of them, they don't necessarily have a narrative, but they are these very popular motifs that he pushes out there. Uh, Sunhouse is another guy like that. He has like, Sunhouse will have like 10 major phrases he does that he just repeats in every song. Right. So after a certain point, when you hear him, you know, some people that aren't deep in the blues will be like, well, he's saying the same thing every time, you know, like he, you know, you you could, you could have a whole bag of nickels every time he says, have you ever loved somebody who don't love you? I mean, that's right. Every blues, he throws that one in somewhere. But if you think of blues being free flowing, you have to think of blues being almost like, because they, they have a theory called floating verses, and I've it's always I've never really liked that. It's it's more like vignettes, and if you put six vignettes together, then you've created a big emotional release, and that's what the blues does. Girl, don't want me, catch me in this 
Floating stanzas, but you have. I, I like to think of it as more mindful than that. Okay, they're figuring it. You know, like it, it, uh, if the if the river was whiskey and I'm a diving duck, I dive to the bottom and I'd never come up. That's an emotional response to several different ideas. Correct. And if I string five of them together, then I have a very big emotional response. That's an overall response compared to the one individual ones that get their own individual response. Um, you know, again, like a lot of the hip hop guys do this now. They just they just do it digitally, make make a, a big response in the first ten seconds of their song, and then they just copy and paste another big response. But with the blues, you have to do that organically, right? You know, but like, you know, it's funny when you because that you mentioned hip hop. As he was explaining this, uh, two people came to my mind specifically: Jay Z and KRS One, because <laughs> they, they they have a, a, especially Jay Z has a, a a way of of utilizing this uh, technique so to speak, where he he would like the Henry Thomases and, and the Sun Houses and, and, and all of these earlier uh, black musicians thread in a popular phrase utilized by other uh, rappers, so to speak, other MCs. Absolutely. And and that's that's a very long standing tradition. Even like a let me think uh, one Dolomite. Other, yeah, exactly. See, Dolomite, that's the same type of thing, too. It's like, um, you know, now they're going to they're gonna have a movie about Rudy Ray Moore, which is amazing. I can't wait to, to get a chance to check it out. He took a very well-known story of Dolomite, which was something that was, again, I'll go into that in the, in the next section. But um, the monologues and the toasts, and then he created a character that was the embodiment of these, mon- these monologues. It, it was a character that didn't exist like... Uh, the way Rudy Ray Moore would present it later, but by taking all these different stories and piecing together this sort of, again, a swagger character, a, a protagonist that was way, way more extreme than the previous protagonists that were during that era. Right. Um, he he creates the, you know, because when, when you hear some of his early party records, I mean, it, it's so filthy, you can't even believe it. You're like, whoa, they were... <laughs> but, but that's part of the point, is that it's so offensive that it's made for folks in a bar room that are willing to laugh at that type of stuff but it's it's within a certain context of, of extremity and so henry thomas has a little bit of that going on when he's doing his blues numbers he's very conscious of what the stories he's telling with every song even if it seems very rural or very folky it's very conscious he has a couple of religious numbers that he does he doesn't have a lot of them he has a little red caboose and when the train comes along which are two really nice uh, sort of string band uh, religious songs that are kind of just uplifting like you know like any of them down by the riverside or any of that type of stuff it's a they're just sort of like uplifting religious numbers very beautiful too how he how he sings them they're just uh, they remind you of lead belly kind of like when he right. lead belly sings like meeting at the building or something like that really rousing sing-along numbers Thank you. 
Part are these two songs that are monologues? That one is a, a religious number and one is a secular number, and so 
The religious one is called Jonah in the Wilderness, and this one is really like a toast. It's like a religious toast where he tells the parable of Jonah and the whale in, in sort of a – it's like a hip-hop style because, you know, the, the, core, the, the hook is, Hey, Jonah, hallelujah, hey, Jonah, preaching in that wilderness – Preaching in that wilderness, go down yonder to the bottom of the ship, seeking I find a sturdy, good-hearted Christian. Go on yonder to the hills I go and see if I find a sturdy, good-hearted Christian, and so forth and so on, telling the whole parable of him going from the leaf and from the leaf it sprung the vine and from the vine that sprung the shade and under that shade brother jonah laid you know and it goes it goes through the whole parable in a way that again when you think of the education of people that are pre-literate these are the ways they conveyed very big messages you know you'd sit down for your 20 minutes and get the entire parable see that Henry Thomas kind of uh, reduces it down because he kind of he starts going into the Noah's Ark tale by the time you get to the end of the record and you can hear that it would just go directly into the next section Correct. on a normal day and uh, then the last one is is the song Railroad in Some which is one of the ones that has been lauded from the beginning as his, as Henry Thomas's greatest number and it's a monologue where he's playing the quills and he's driving the rhythm and he's telling the story of, of going from Texas up to Chicago. And um, on the I have the LP right here of Texas Worried Blues. And just to run it through, he says, I leave Fort Worth, Texas, and go to Texarkana, and I double back to Fort Worth. I come on down to Dallas, change cars on the Katy, coming through the territory to Kansas City, and Kansas City to St. Louis, and St. Louis to Chicago. I'm on my way, but I don't know where. And then the next section is... Uh, 
I changed cards on the TP, leaving Fort Worth, Texas, going to Dallas. Hello, Terrell, Grand Saline, Silver Lake, Mineola, Tyler, Longview, Jefferson, Marshall. That it is, it is just startling that he's laying out for you his entire trip, going from Texas, and tells you that there are certain lines that he goes on. He switches off here, and then he he tells the story of finally getting to Chicago, which is um, almost tells his story almost <laughs> with a bunch of mystery left behind. Wow, that's that is like I can't think of another word other than amazing because again utilizing this term pre-literate right because we know there were uh, black entertainers that could read from the 1700s to this period we're talking about but for the audience members who could not for them to sit down and whether recorded or live and and, and hear this song it, it I can just imagine how excited they got to sit down and hear about this 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 traveling journey to places they can't go. So that's bringing them outside of their rural or regional area. Absolutely. And again, as as I mentioned before, there is a sense that you uh, you know you you couldn't really understand a community from the outside unless you happen to be someone who was in contact with the outside world. So you're in this sort of halfway point where you can you can now hear a private concert by a, a musician who's far different from yourself or anybody you grew up with 
and Henry Thomas is conveying that. And again, we're very fortunate that they made the 23 uh, recordings that they did so that we have a very broad spectrum of Henry Thomas's story. And through that, now in the 21st century, you know, now we can use digital technology and allocate a lot of different field recordings to, to find circumstantial evidence around Henry Thomas. Like for me, I got to know the recordings of a, a fellow by the name of Pete Harris, who was from outside of Houston, Texas, and he was recorded by John Lomax. So when he recorded in 1934, he was 33 years old. So he's actually a contemporary to Henry Thomas by straight age. Correct. Um, and so Lomax mentions that Pete Harris's grandfather was a pure African in the small, you know, interview that they say talking about this fellow. And he also shares several songs with Henry Thomas. Like when you hear him play, if you spend enough time with Henry Thomas, you'll hear Pete Harris and say, whoa, this guy's playing the same style, the exact mm. same guitar style and the same type of bass runs. Like particularly there's a piece called Square Dance Calls that Pete Harris recorded. And this is the same form as The Fox and the Hounds by Henry Thomas, minus the quills, but he yodels instead of playing the quills. So, mm. so he does, if I live, instead of doing, if I live, hoot, hoot, if I live, hoot, hoot. Uh, Pete Harris does, if I live, Eight hands up and suck a ride, promenade all the way around. Grab the guy you love the best, uh, leave my guy alone. Ha ha. So he comes with, he has a different style of square dance calling from Henry Thomas, but it's the same number. Mm. He also does, I understand. Fully. He also does Out My Alabama Bound. He also does some Blind Lemon Jefferson numbers as well. And it, it, it's very interesting to put the two of them next to each other. Well, I, I just need to ask you this. Outside, well, not necessarily outside of Henry Thomas, but all this kind of connects. You mentioned uh, when you initially brought up the Lomaxes, and this is a big conversation. Um, I happen to uh, appreciate their work as well. But, uh, you know, give or take all, all the word on the street rumors, whatever, whatever have you. But more importantly, you mentioned in his uh, quest to preserve what he thought was dying due to this new format style of music. So he went to where he knew these people will have, not the people will have these original songs. A yeah. lot of people don't know about the term slave secular. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these things that, again, you know, when you, when you start to think of the Fist Jubilee singers being the mainstream style of African-American music in the popular field, it becomes the idea of what folk music is. Because even one of the very first scholars of African-American folk music, Howard Odom, part of what got him started into being a, a armchair folklorist and then later a legitimate folklorist was that he heard the Fist Jubilee singers and being from Mississippi, he said, this isn't really the folk music I know from Mississippi. I, and, and for him, he was a psychologist. So for his, his theory was, how do I get black people to tell me the actual music they actually do compared to just saying, uh, they, they, this popular music is just fine. I'm, I, I'm not really involved, but hey, I, you know, th this music's great. Right. And so that was his theory behind it, because at that time in 1909, 1910, when he's making his his um, he's notating, not not recording, but notating these songs, the lyrics. He's not even notating music at first. He's notating the words of what people are saying and trying to understand the mask that African-Americans had to put up during the years of slavery. And he's trying to figure out how do I get past their masks so they will reveal to me their true thoughts. <laughs> Right. This you is know, the, this is I'm, how folklore is built is is on this idea of like, well, we know you got a double consciousness to reference W.E.B., but how do we break through it so that we can find the real musical legacy? And that's and it, again, it's it's very outdated and very strange to think that people had to talk and think like this. But this is how they had to make their first research into this type of anthropology. Well, no, I, I don't usually disagree with you, but I, I have to, it's not outdated. There's still coded language to this day. To your point, rap music is, is and that's the irony of like, I don't want to say real rap, but I have to. Real rap music and why it's so connected to our traditional music, because 
it was always a coded language. I would I would venture off to say Public Enemy and NWA were the first to really blatantly make specific messages or statements. And one more thing on that is is ironic because based on your definition of of what folklorists intended to do, which I do agree with, by the way, is almost ironic because those who are either non-black or I would better say non-black who are not in tune with this double language, so to speak, or, or having to present present two faces would hold dear to some of the statements like Johnny Lee Hooker, right? There, there are some blues enthusiasts and, and historians, et cetera, et cetera, that is, is not informed, I guess, or, or, or well-versed in the conversation we're discussing with uh, the, the two faces black people have to wear. And they would, you know, really hang on to the fact that Johnny Lee Hooker say, hey, man, there's no black, there's no white, it's just blues. But they're not aware that after he said that to that particular non-black person, the conversation that took place in the in the back room with the rest of the black artists, that was something that probably is why a lot of the trajectory of the story gets convoluted or is a big misconception. I, I, I would like you to do one thing, because we've mentioned the Fisk Jubilee singers throughout this uh, podcast series a couple of times. Would you please give the people an estimate of when when they were traveling and performing? Because this also gives a good understanding of the history of how these things played out. Absolutely. Well, the Fisk Jubilee singers, I believe it was right in the mid-1880s, if I'm correct. Correct me if I got the date right on there. I think somewhere in the mid-1880s, you know, Fisk, the Fisk, Fisk University being a historical black college university, um, it was it was having a lot of trouble in the post-Reconstruction era raising enough money. So they ended up sending their choir out to do some fundraising. And in the course of it, they first did classical composition. But being that they were African-American performers, people wanted to sideline it because they're like, well, they're not the same as the classical people we already have, so what's the point? But they decided to start incorporating Negro spirituals into their performances, and that went over like, amazing and then they became internationally famous but the kind of weird part of their story is that when they first started touring internationally they the audience said well this is the weirdest type of minstrelsy we've ever seen they're not wearing blackface they're not singing really any of the minstrel songs and this is kind of like it's almost legitimate music and again (laughs) you know but then once they became internationally famous everybody loved them and they loved everything that this this um this group presented and then it it spawned a a million other groups the tuskegee institute then had their own choir there was a group called the memphis students that was kind of like a secular religious group and then of course the the strong tradition of gospel quartets like the norfolk jazz and jubilee quartet and jubilee singing groups became their own sort of genre that exploded on the scene and in some ways still continues to this day i mean it's the it's the it's the foundation of the mills brothers it's the foundation of the ink spots and uh, and doo-wop and all that stuff is this correct history of of the Fist Jubilee singer. So it's, again, these are all running at the same time. So you saw Fist Jubilee one week and then you saw Burt Williams the next week. Not exactly like that, but you could, this was all part of the same circuit of traveling performers. And so it, they all influenced each other one way or the other, whether it was a direct one-to-one or they happened to run in the same circuits or the same cities and, and the audience began to inform them in their own type of way. Of course, in a, you know, blues, a, Again, blues integrated in in the late 60s in a way that I think was great for the tolerance and for the elevation of the form. But there are certain nuances that are still there in the music. And you can't deny that. That's, you know, it's just, you know, it's like take the guitar out of the blues, you know, like how, how can you even possibly try to assume that blues can be done without guitar? You know, you can sing, you can sing a blues number, but if there's no guitar, it's kind of like that's not 
all the blues that we know. And right. So in, in some ways, that's that still is a part of the music culturally, as well as, you know, there are aesthetics for the commodification, but there are cultural elements that are always in the fore, forefront, which makes the music what it is, you know? Right. It was Jimmy Duck Holmes who told me, he was talking to somebody. He said the person who was a guitar player said they didn't play the blues. And he said, well, if you don't play the blues, you don't play the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the blues is that direct, and that's that's one of the things that's again. Is that this is why I took a little time to to mention the the breakdown of black vaudeville in the wake of blues is because blues brought on a you know it's a do or die type of music, and it's been since the first moment it emerged. It's like you're either a great blues singer or you're just you're just all right, you know. And the best blues singers are the ones that really elevate themselves. Of course, women. Is it's a whole different story with women because it starts off as it's a singing type of music. See, like women blues tends to be more vocally based um, many times. I won't say that's that's the. It, yeah, I don't want to say that across. That's the how it was packaged because then we got to speak about Memphis Minnie, who's been recording in the since the late the early. 1910, 1911, That's you right. know, uh, Geechee Wiley. There, there was, I mean, you mentioned Sister Rosetta Thorpe a lot. Yeah, it, it, it just ended up being that the male blues singers tended to have instruments more often. But again, the nature of the popular blues as a theatrical form also uh, kind of leads the path to why um, female blues tended to be more singer singing and more a, a song-based type of music behind a jazz band correct is the nature of the theater but memphis minnie even she recorded a tribute to ma rainey early in her career saying ma rainey's gone but memphis minnie's here to keep it on so she even embraced ma rainey's style and then made that her style and and again pushed that style forward all the way into like the early 1950s still sounding great too yeah, she's great. So now, to bring it full circle to, to Henry Thomas, what can you leave with the audience? Because what one of the interesting things that I've come to find out uh, in my search or research of, of Henry Thomas is uh, there's a, I believe he was a folklorist or educator or musician, I forget, but... He stumbles across this guy and, and builds a relationship with him. And the entire time he's trying to figure, wait a minute, is, is, is this this mysterious man, Henry Thomas? Yeah, I think that uh, those are uh, the notes from uh, Mac McCormick. So he was an American guy from Texas. And he's oh, so he was American. OK, yeah. excuse me. And, yeah. But Paul, Ol he was connected to Paul Oliver, who's a British guy as well. So they worked together recently. They did. Um, they published a book of, of Paul Oliver and Mac McCormick's work of Texas blues. But these guys, they're. They're the ones who uh, really turned Chris Strackwitz onto a lot of Texas blues. And so their legacy pushes forward into like our Hooli records and, and that type of uh, Texas blues, Lightning Hopkins and all those guys. And so their work is with Henry Thomas and Henry Thomas paved the way for these guys to be able to record Mance and Lightning Hopkins and all these guys. And so that's that's kind of where the ultimate legacy of Henry Thomas begins to show up when it comes to these folklorists is that they started looking based on Henry Thomas and, and people like Lightning Hopkins as well. Leadbelly, of course, as well, who's another Rosetta Stone for, um, for African-American folk music. So they kind of use that as the jumping off point. And again, Henry Thomas is connected to Texas Alexander. He's connected to... Um, who else is there? There's a guy named Gene Campbell who's a great Texas player. Little Hat Jones is another guy. Um, who else is another uh, great player from that era? Blind Lemon Jefferson, of course. You're correct. So, th so there's a, a distinct region because Texas is kind of, is a big state. It's almost like its own island in the United States. So it's uh, on so many levels. And and it's it's a uh, it, it's treat and you have to treat the musical culture that way because next to uh, the American and uh, black and white music, you have uh, Mexican music that is that's very prominent. You have uh, Polish music and German music that's very prominent. So it has a very interesting mix, and Henry Thomas's music is very indicative of that mix. So if nothing else, folks, what culminates out of this uh, podcast series is 
in the midst of a lot of early uh, scholars speaking of Mississippi, uh, a Texas has such a rich, deep African-American musical history. I want to thank you, Don, man. We, you know, this, as per usual, the, the, the information and conversation is impeccable. Well, you know, Jack Tapper, I'm so glad when, when you mentioned to me that you were going to do something on Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas is one of those people I hold very close to my heart because he's, unlike many country blues musicians that have been studied in deep, deep uh, meditation and also in deep scholarship, Henry Thomas is one that there hasn't been a full retrospective on his work because he he reaches more so from a place that's that's connected to the old time string bands and, and to country music and parts that aren't as bluesy as many of the blues scholars might uh, want to move. So it, it to me, it, it, it's part of the foundation of my work as a string band musician and as a banjo player and a guitar player. So it's I'm just so glad that uh, I was able to speak with you a little bit and try to get a little in depth just to because it, it helps pull back the layers when you start to be able to delve into the recorded repertoire of a, of a fellow like Henry Thomas. Absolutely, man.